So hello again, everyone. I'm uh, pleased to be able to share with everyone uh, as we collectively really explore how to practice, how to respond uh, during this very uh, challenging time, this time of the pandemic. And I want to continue on from the talk last week and talk about two really fundamental qualities which are crucial to develop, keep developing during this time. And those two qualities are compassion and equanimity. And in many ways, they bring out the qualities of the kind heart, the responsive heart, um, integrated with wisdom. And we'll explore compassion and equanimity in a few different ways through looking at uh, the nature of these qualities, looking at practices. We'll also have a visit from uh, Kuan Yin, the uh, Bodhisattva of Compassion. And we'll also have a visit with Eve Decker, who will lead us in some uh, songs, music, that helps us explore these two qualities. So I'll try to talk for probably something like 40 minutes or so, and then have some time for discussion, sharing, questions. And we'll finish uh, right around noon Pacific time, could be just a few minutes after. So first I want to review just a little bit of what um, we explored last time, which because I think it's good to touch base. And again, the talk is available in Dharma Seed, just to name some of the fundamentals, I think, for navigating this time. And so I'll be very brief here. Longer discussion is in the talk. Um, so first to, as much as possible, be aware of uh, challenges and even crises as opportunities. They're, they bring difficulties, but they also bring opportunities. Uh, challenges or difficulties can trigger our old patterns. They can trigger the old patterns of a person, of a community, of a nation, of a world. And we can see that happening. But the challenges or crises can also uh, lead to opportunities to be creative and actually to develop um, more adequate responses and work through some of the old stuff. So it's really, I think, crucial to keep that in mind. Very crucial also to keep connected with community, ground in community. Uh, I've noticed some people have been changing the term social distancing to physical distancing with social connection, a very, uh, I think, a very good reframing. Linked with that is be informed enough to know what's happening and what to do, but be careful about the extent of use of the media. It can be very helpful to limit it. You know, I limit it probably to about half hour a day to be informed because going too often to that news, I've noticed it, can really sometimes trigger anxiety. So be careful with that. Keep with your core practices, the mindfulness practice. If you have a heart practice, uh, metta, loving kindness, compassion, joy, gratitude, all very crucial at this time. Give a special focus to being skillful with difficult emotions, difficult mind states, the mind going to repetitive negative stories or scenarios. There are a lot of ways to work with that. Some of them we explored in the talk last time, but to keep remembering to work with difficult thoughts, difficult emotions, difficult body states. Uh, grounding and body practices can be very helpful at this time. Qigong, Tai Chi, yoga, a lot of walking, and so forth. One potential is to do more of a home retreat. I mentioned this last time, and we've actually invited again a, a collective home retreat uh, this weekend. It's really a potential. One can do a few hours, one can do a Sabbath practice once a week, 
One can do a longer retreat. I'm, I've actually, as, as I mentioned last time, uh, was scheduled to be on a personal retreat the month of March at Spirit Rock. Uh, left home, uh, left Spirit Rock after about 15 days. And I've actually stayed on retreat. It's a modified retreat now where I do about six or seven hours a day of formal practice. I tend to uh, some responsibilities, but keep the whole day within the framework of practice. So that's the potentials there. And that can really also be linked with that sense of this time as inviting a deeper looking into what's important for you. I've heard this from a lot of people that the uh, shift in, in our the way our daily lives are can really open up what are my deeper motivations. It can lead to some changes. I've heard that again from a number of people. And then lastly, and related to our theme of compassion, is to find ways to help others. Could even say, I will devote this number of hours to helping others. Many of you are already continuing with your work in which you're helping others, but just to have that be part of the part of the intention. And here again today we'll emphasize these two beautiful qualities, compassion and equanimity. Again, really linked to this link, this connection, integration of uh, wisdom and the awakened heart. Uh, it's often a way, as many of you know, talking about wisdom and compassion, it's often a way in which the whole of the teachings and practices are summarized that the Dharma, the core teachings are sometimes talked about as a bird with two wings that needs both of them, wisdom, one wing, compassion, the other, really compassion being the stand-in for the different qualities of, of the heart. And, and yet these are all practices to, to work with compassion. Uh, these are, these are situated, compassion and equanimity are situated within this beautiful collection called the Brahma Vihara, the Divine Abodes, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. I wanted to focus on compassion and equanimity. All of them are really important at this time, but uh, I wanted to single out compassion and equanimity. And they're all, they're all related and they actually um, support each other. One of the beautiful teachings of the four qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is that they all have to be developed in order for any one of them to be developed, that they mingle, they interpenetrate, they support each other. The, the kind of the occupational hazards of compassion, for example, which would be sometimes to get overwhelmed, to have burnout, to developing ways of distancing oneself from those one thinks are suffering. Those can get balanced by equanimity. The danger of equanimity, the occupational hazard, is that equanimity gets a little bit aloof or indifferent or far away. And when we practice compassion, that gets mitigated. This is from uh, the great Tibetan teacher Long Chenpa from the 14th century. Out of the soil of metta, or loving-kindness, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. So what is equanimity? What is compassion? I'll start with compassion. What is the nature of compassion? Traditionally, it's understood as the quivering of the heart in connection with pain or difficulty or what we call suffering. So it suggests that the heart is open and can be with what's difficult. Very crucial quality for our times. There's a related uh, term in the uh, Buddhist teachings, anukampa, which is translated really as a kind of shaking and trembling. There's an inner shaking and trembling when we're with what's difficult for ourselves or for others. And what we do is we learn to be with that difficulty and then we learn to be responsive. 
And of course, our conditioning often leads us to move away from what's difficult or painful. And we reverse that tendency. We learn how to be with what's difficult or painful, initially sometimes with small difficulties, small painful experiences in our mindfulness practice, and increasingly larger ones. Uh, a poem by uh, David White about the importance of being willing to go into difficult experiences. It's called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface of the well of grief, turning downward through the black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Very relevant for our times. One of the great teachers of compassion is the beloved figure uh, Quan Yin. And Juliana, we can have the first image now. Quan Yin is a, a figure who comes mostly out of China, but is a is a a being who is uh, the embodiment of compassion. This is from the 19th century, uh, Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin is a really a transmutation of the Indian figure of Avalokiteshvara, the embodiment of compassion. And in, in China, uh, Kuan Yin would be the teacher and the refuge for so many people. And many people in the West also have a very strong relationship to Kuan Yin, may do chanting or in some way feel the uh, inner archetype that can be inspiring. We can move to the second image. The second image is also of Kuan Yin. This is from the 15th or 16th century in China. And you can't see it too clearly, but the right at the on the top of the head, there is a small Buddha who's actually Amitabha. Uh, and I mean, it's said sometimes that Kuan Yin came out of the Buddha figure Amitabha. And now the third figure, uh, this is from the 18th century. And then we can go to the last one. And this is a thousand arm, thousand eyes Kuan Yin from the 17th century in China. And this image really brings out a very fundamental aspect of compassion, uh, that it has both a receptive and an active dimension. The receptive dimension is when we tune in receptively, sometimes uh, empathically, to our own difficulty, pain, what we call suffering, or we tune into another. And there's a very important receptive dimension that we cultivate in our practice of compassion. But there is also an active dimension, the active response. And this is symbolized by the arms. The receptive dimension is symbolized by the eyes on each arm. This is a thousand armed Kuan Yin, a thousand arms for active response. Each of the arms has an eye. And we can't see it too clearly, but each arm has an eye uh, that uh, is the receptive aspect. This particular Kuan Yin also happens to have 11 heads, which can come in handy when you have a lot of work. So uh, so this is really the, uh, gives a sense of the core of compassion. I think we can turn now to, to Eve, and we wanted to invite a song which brings out the nature of compassion. This is Eve Decker. Dharma teacher, musician. Hello, uh, lovely to be here with you. This song of compassion was written by Melanie Damore, and it's called I Am Sending You Light. It's a short repeating song. I think of it as a sung compassion practice. And so um, as I'm singing, you can think of it as a phrase practice, and you can sing along or just let it flow through 
offering compassion, kindness in the face of stress to yourself and your own system or out to others. I am sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. I am sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. I am sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. I am sending you Thank you so much, Eve. And we'll come back to Eve in just a little while with an equanimity song. So how to practice and develop uh, compassion. Uh, let me talk about three main ways to cultivate compassion. And Juliana, do we have, uh, let's see, do we have me on the main, as the main image now? Uh, that's something that people can control themselves by doing on the top right corner, okay. gallery view or speaker view. Oh, but speaker view, okay, very good. If you're speaker view, then you, you should be the main image. Yeah. Okay, very good. Okay. So how to, how to develop compassion? I wanna talk very briefly about three ways. One is through our mindfulness, our insight practice. The second is through what we might call heart practices. And the third is through developing our responses in action, such as we've talked about briefly before. Uh, the individual practice of mindfulness, of insight practice, where we learn how to be with what's difficult. We learn how to be with what's unpleasant. We don't turn away from what's painful will in itself lead to the cultivation of compassion. Because we sit with what's difficult, we see our struggles, we see how it's hard, we see that uh, being with difficulty and being with the unpleasant is part of human life. And we may sit with very ordinary and less challenging pains, uh, maybe the knee pain in meditation. We may also sit with more challenging experiences more challenging emotions with sadness or grief or fear or anxiety. And it's the sustained being with those experiences, which in part opens up uh, compassion. And we, when we've looked carefully, for example, at fear or anxiety or 
anger, her sadness, or grief, being judgmental, when we've looked carefully at it, we know how each of these can potentially really make human experience so hard. And we can also have a sense of how to work with these qualities, of how to work with these challenges uh, that can both guide our practice and give us more understanding, bring in the uh, wisdom dimension in terms of working with the difficulties. You know, very crucial here is one of my favorite teachings, if not my favorite teachings from the Buddha, which is really crucial for our times. And I think this may be the most central of all the Buddhist teachings. Um, it's the teaching of the two arrows. And it's very fundamental for our times. It goes like this. The Buddha once asked a group of practitioners, everyone whether a practitioner or non-practitioner experiences the unpleasant. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? He answered his own question because they didn't, no one answered him. And so here's what he said. Everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. And we can think of that as unpleasant physical experiences, which is what the Buddha referred to. But we can also think of it as unpleasant emotional experiences, interpersonal experiences, injustice, lack of fairness, and so forth. All of us have those experiences at times. He said in that, everyone is the same, whether one is a, a Buddha, an advanced practitioner, a non-practitioner. He said where the difference is, is that a non-practitioner, which also means us when we're not practicing, a non-practitioner, because of the first experience, which the Buddha called the first arrow, that initial unpleasant experience, the unpleasant physical, emotional, interpersonal experience, he called the first arrow. That's part of a common humanity. He said that how a practitioner differs is that the non-practitioner will tend to react to the first arrow and shoot a second arrow, so to speak, as if that would help. What does that mean? It means tensing around the physical unpleasant quality, or maybe blaming oneself or blaming another. You know, uh, I like to cite findings from um, researchers on chronic pain who say that some forms of chronic pain, the pain may be as much as 80% the reaction with 20% being the original stimulus. Still hard, but it's made way worse by the reaction. And so, no coincidence that the first application of mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn around 1979-80 was with people experiencing chronic pain. And so we may react physically. We, we know very well how we react emotionally. Something difficult happens to me. I blame the other person, I blame myself, I get in a funk for three hours. That's all the second arrow. And we can do that interpersonally, we can do that in communities, nations can do that. A lot of conflicts and wars are two sides shooting second arrows at each other. So we want to especially watch that in these times because when we have difficult experiences, we can have negative uh, storylines we can really uh, make it worse by uh, shooting the second arrow. So that's a very important part of this experience of developing compassion through insight mindfulness, watching how those dynamics work. <clears throat> a second way to develop compassion <clears throat> is, is through deliberate heart practices. And some of you know compassion practices like Tong Len or uh, the compassion practice that is uh, analogous to a loving kindness practice. I'll teach a very quick one that was developed by Kristen Neff. Very, very brief. Here it is. And this is useful during the day. I may be having a difficult experience or someone else may be having a difficult experience. 
three steps. First step is acknowledge this is hard. This is happening. It's hard for me, or we might say it's hard for the other. Just the acknowledgement it's hard. We can do this in the moment. Secondly, acknowledge that it's part of a common humanity. Everyone is vulnerable to having these kind of difficulties. If it's a difficult emotion, difficult physical experience. This is common. This is common to others. I share this. It's not something special about me. And then thirdly, in some way wishing well to oneself or to the other, may I hold this difficult experience with grace, with compassion, with wisdom. So, so a very quick way that we can work. And there are other ways to develop compassion as well. And then thirdly, and we could say a lot about this, and maybe we can say more in the discussion time, we can more actively respond to difficult situations, both our own experience and that of others, with compassionate action. And many of us do this regularly as part of our work, our volunteer work, our paid work, and so forth. So those are a few ways to cultivate compassion. We could say a lot more if we had more time, but I want to move on to equanimity. I hope you have equanimity about leaving compassion after hopefully uh, a helpful but brief um, exploration. So moving to equanimity, again, a, a very powerful, beautiful quality. Many of the, the beings who are most beloved in the world had very strong qualities of equanimity, of, of balance, of unshakability. You know, I was thinking of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Many of you know his speech, which you can find on YouTube, the night before he was assassinated, speaking in Memphis. And uh, just a few lines can bring out a very beautiful quality of equanimity. He said, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. A little bit of resonance with our present time. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing anyone. So the quality of equanimity is, we sometimes say, like the qualities of a wise grandmother. The wise grandmother, we might say, has seen everything, has seen a lot, certainly, and yet still has care and responsiveness, but it's really tempered by the wisdom of the accumulated experience. So equanimity is something like that. It's a lot of balance, a lot of clarity, but it also has a very warm quality. And it involves keeping balance and also staying connected to the heart in an, in an increasingly wide range of experiences, including challenging experiences. In a sense, we could say equanimity can hold everything. It's non-reactive. It's sometimes we would say it's the still point, even if everything is rushing around. And so equanimity isn't the same as calmness. Uh, equanimity can be there when things are not calm, when things are rushing around and hard. I think I, I learned this once when I, you know, worked in the retreat dining hall for uh, a long period, for a week or so, and I was uh, helping in a way that involved all sorts of activities. I was rushing around, doing this, doing that, very busy, but I could keep some balance. And that, that's, so that's important, that equanimity can be there when things are busy, when things are hectic, when things are even a little bit, of, a little bit crazy. And so, again, like compassion, we can develop it. And I'll say more about this in a moment. We can cultivate equanimity both in our wisdom practice, our uh, mindfulness practice. We can cultivate a sense of balance and 
clear seeing. And then we also have heart practices, which are analogous to metta and compassion, where you develop uh, equanimity. So I thought now to also um, have uh, Eve give a second song on equanimity. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. Okay, so this song is called Equanimity, and I wrote it with two friends based on some of the Buddhist teachings about how to access equanimity. It's like this. It can be no other way everything that came before has led us to this moment it's like this so open and let go bring awareness and acceptance to this moment as it passes here i am life arising as it wills how can i bend gracefully with the winds surrounding me here I am. Life brings both sorrow and joy. Letting go the fight, the blame. Deep calm infuses me. Stand in the heart of the moment. Inner stability. Turn to a place of stillness, equanimity. Just this much, seeing clearly into now. No need for all the stories. Just naming what is present, just this much, without reactivity. I don't have to push, to clutch, I can simply let it be, stand in the heart of the Thank you so much, Eve. Uh, and I want to really uh, follow up from the song and 
uh, talk about a little more depth about some of the qualities of equanimity, which a lot of which will echo in a sense with um, with that song. Uh, equanimity, first of all, uh, is about balance. And in fact, the original word uh, has that uh, meaning uh, of balance. So it's really increasingly being able to have a balanced approach to what comes up. A lot of our learning about equanimity and about balance occurs when we're mindful of coming out of balance. And so again, this very crucial dimension of bringing mindfulness, wisdom, compassion to our experiences where we don't have balance. That's so central right now uh, to be able to practice in that way. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a passage from uh, Mark Twain, the, the great uh, writer from the US. He said, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. So it's something like that. Uh, we, we learn actually, we learn equanimity and develop balance by sustained periods of time, learning what takes us away, learning the different forms of reactivity, uh, studying in depth uh, at times, our fear, our anxiety, our sadness, the anger, the proliferation of stories and so forth. A lot of, a lot of what uh, this balance is about is learning not to shoot the second arrow, learning to be with the first arrow. So balance is a key quality of equanimity. Another one is a kind of evenness where we can stay with every experience, somewhat, somewhat like in Eve's song. Uh, may have been referring at the beginning, I think, to uh, a very famous uh, teaching by the monk Achan Sumedho, who often says, okay, fear, oh, it's like this. Okay, uh, irritation, it's like this. Okay, mind going crazy, oh, it's like this. So we just, we, we look at it. We have a, a certain evenness. Oh, that's happening, I'll work with it. So and you can hear that we don't have that second arrow being shot. The first arrow is hard enough. And I thought of um, uh, a Japanese haiku that's really uh, a nice expression of this. This is from Basho from the 17th century, one of my favorites. It's very quick. Haikus occur very quickly, so you have to listen. Um, fleas, lice. The horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. So could interpret that by saying several instances of the first arrow, no second arrow. Right? So, so that evenness, it also is related to another quality which we could call unshakability. That we can, again, the fruit of being with difficult experiences is we can increasingly know the difficult experiences and not be scared by them, shaken by them. You know, I'm talking with some friends and practitioners talking about the, one of the hardest things now is actually can be not so much the fear itself, but the fear of the fear. I've heard that from people. And so we, in many ways, we become like the mountain climber who's familiar with fear. The mountain climber has fear, but there's no second arrow. There's no reaction and then can respond skillfully to the fear, often which the fear is giving intelligence, right? It's telling one something. Um, so we can we can work with what uh, knocks us off, knocks us off base. Watch the stories. Um, you know, uh, I like to often practice equanimity when I go to the dentist. And I'm actually sad. I have an upcoming dental appointment, which is being canceled. Uh, but hope, but hopefully not crucial. Um, a fourth quality of equanimity is what we might call understanding and wisdom. And again, Eve referred to this right at the beginning of the song. It's part of equanimity is really tuning into the causes and conditions that are happening. 
knowing why things are occurring. You know, I can remember having one really difficult interaction with someone at work that was repetitive. And one time after a difficult encounter, I just said, okay, he's doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. Oh, this happened, <laughs> right? And that led to uh, letting go of further reactions, right? I could see, I could see it as causes and conditions. Some people I've really been inspired with see actually deep um, social issues from a long perspective. The, the uh, teacher and activist A.J. Ariyaratni from Sri Lanka talked about the conditions for the civil war in Sri Lanka as having a 500-year history of causes and conditions. So he said, we have to understand that and have a 500-year plan for dealing with those cause and conditions of really looking from that long perspective. The poet Gary Snyder likes to talk about keeping a 4,000-year perspective on everything that's happening, you know? So to, to understand, you know, the, the poet Longfellow says, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life the sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So again, this is where the heart practices, forgiveness or compassion can really support equanimity. There's a quality of faith where we really uh, develop increasingly the willingness to be with what's difficult. And there's some faith really in the workability of things. You know, faith in our own ability to respond, to work with what comes up. And maybe last or the next to last quality I want to mention is that there is that quality of warmth that I mentioned, that there can be joy and appreciation. That would be something to look at when we uh, cultivate equanimity. Is there still that warmth, the joy? Um, you know, because the <clears throat> it's said that the near enemy or the occupational hazard of equanimity is indifference or distancing ourselves in some way or being aloof. And so we that's why I wanted to bring in both compassion and equanimity. We want to have them together. And related to that, the last quality of equanimity is that there is responsiveness. Equanimity is not aloof. It actually is very linked with action and response. And I love very much what I learned from a, a Vietnamese friend uh, named uh, Thich Minh Duc. He taught me that in the uh, Vietnamese Buddhist movements of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, they actually found a need to modify the age-old teaching that the core is wisdom and compassion. And they said, we need a third dimension. We need courage linked with action. So this really brings out the dimension of, uh, of responsiveness, action, very linked with uh, equanimity. So I've been brief here. I've sometimes given way, way longer talks on each of these, but I wanted to address them and make some links to our situation with the pandemic. And it's been interesting. I'm sitting in my study and I look out on the street where I live. And as we've been, as, as I've been speaking, I watch people with masks come by, walk by. I watch our person who delivers the mail come by, you know, she's at risk and she's walking and very dedicated to bringing the mail. So I've been watching that. So really two quotations to close, and then we can open things up to discussion and um, questions if there are some. The first is by uh, the monk Nyanaponikatero on the relation of compassion and equanimity. This is what he says. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the world in order to be able to stand the test by strengthening itself. 
Equanimity is an unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. It furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. And then I'll, I'll end with a very short teaching from the Dalai Lama. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. End of teaching. So thank you everyone for your, for your kind attention. And let me just ask you right now, just to take a moment after having listened to the talk and the music, the image, seen the images of Kuan Yin, take a moment just to ask yourself what resonated with me? What might help me in my own personal practice and my being with others? Is there any intention which comes out of this time of practice and listening to the to the talk, music, and seeing the images? Take a moment right now. So thank you again. We have, uh, we have a good chunk of time now for any um, sharing. If you have a story of compassion, uh, you could share it. If you do so, be on the brief side or a question, anything to add. If you have a question, you can again ask the question by either raising the hand and Juliana will see that uh, using that function or also through the chat box. And there may already be some accumulated questions. So. Arnold, there's, um, there's one request that you restate the main qualities of equanimity one more time. Okay. Restate the qualities of equanimity. Um, the first is balance. The first I mentioned is balance. The second, evenness. The third, unshakability. The fourth, uh, understanding and wisdom. That's where I talked about seeing the causes and conditions. The fifth is faith. The sixth is what we might call joy or warmth, kindness, the kind of the heart quality. And the seventh is responsiveness and action. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, another question came in for you, Donald. Um, what brings you the greatest comfort um, when your need is the greatest? When my need is the greatest, uh, well, um, let's just say um, in my best moments, okay? <laughs> so, uh, when the need is the greatest, we're not always in balance. We don't always have equanimity. So when I'm, as it were, at my best, I think it's probably the two things which come to mind are um, a sense of interconnection, having others be there for me. And then maybe that, I think, the quality of equanimity very much also. And I, I didn't mention it, but I... I attribute a lot of my equanimity to my, my father, Simon, who um, 
had a lot of very, very hard life experiences and always kept a remarkable balance. He was, he grew up in a very poor family, um, enlisted in the army when he, uh, what was then the Army Air Force when he was 18, which was near the beginning of World War II, witnessed uh, death um, and the loss of people he was close to, um, had uh, discrimination against him because he was of Jewish ancestry, couldn't go to medical school like he wanted to, and later had psoriasis uh, and later a form of cancer, which he was able to be with for um, 25 years when the initial prognosis was two years. And so I, I've learned a tremendous amount from him. So that probably comes in as well. Thank you. Another question is, how do we learn to be with difficult emotions rather than turning away from them? Yeah. I, I think uh, she, uh, I think she kept going and said, I, I think in calming the nervous system, I often am repressing. Yeah, yeah. How to be with difficult emotions. I believe if you look on Dharma Seed under my name, I probably have uh, uh, 45 minute talks, maybe probably a series on this very topic. I think I did that two or three years ago. So there's a very long, longer response, I'll say. And it's a it's a topic that many of us as teachers also explore. So I know Tara Brock teaches very skillfully on this. I think of her. Um, but just a, a quick response. What I like to say initially, which not all teachers say, is that first get a sense of the uh, level of intensity of the emotion. I like to use the scale that Olympic divers use or that judges use, I guess, uh, of one to 10. Give yourself a value for the level of intensity. When the level of intensity is up towards a nine or a 10, Mindfulness is not the best uh, response because it often will be too much for the mindfulness. And so then if it's a nine or a 10, we can do something like loving kindness practice, which was in some of the um, teachings is understood as an antidote to fear. And I've used it that in that way, uh, that when there's a lot of fear, uh, sometimes uh, going to loving kindness or a practice like that, which is a concentration practice. So it has the capacity to actually shift us away from what's dominant. Interestingly, in some conditions, we don't want to be with what's happening when it's a nine or a 10, because it's basically taking us away. And again, that is not always clear in the teaching. So that's the first pointer. When it's in the workable range, and it might be something like uh, up to a six or a seven, it's going to be individual. When it's in the workable range, we want to name the difficult emotion. And I should say that uh, in terms of working with the most intense experiences, we want to have a repertoire for ways to work with a difficult experience that I named loving kindness practice. We might do something physical, take a walk, talk with a friend, calm the nervous system, and so forth. And you know, with more time, we could go into more detail there, but there are a whole set of ways to work with the most intense experiences that we have. And so then when it's in the workable range, we want to explore. This is where we bring in the quality of investigation. What's it like in the body? Stay with the experience in the body. Some difficult emotions are about covering over unprocessed uh, emotions. Anger is often like that. When we have like a, a lot of intense anger, we stay in the body. Sometimes we get a sense, oh, there's something beneath it. Um, sadness, maybe. And so be with the body, be with the emotions. A key instruction also is to watch how things change when we stay with it. So I think naming the experience, learning to be with it, bringing in some compassion practice if it's sustained. So we hold ourselves with compassion. So that's a quick, a quick response. But I think getting at the basics. 
I don't know if everyone knows how to raise their hand, but um, on the bottom of your screen, you may need to hover your mouse um, in the bottom part of your screen to see it. There's a menu bar and you should be able to choose participants. And then on the side, um, a bar will open up, which should have a blue button that says raise hand. And that will just put a little hand icon up so I can see that you're raising your hand. It also could be a sharing if there's some way that you have found yourself developing more compassion or just what a, what um, how you've responded compassionately to a difficult situation, that would be welcome. If you do Another that, question. be on the brief side, yeah. Okay. Uh, in the chat, this is a, a challenging question, I think. Um, how can I find compassion for those failing to take precautions in the face of the coronavirus? How can I find compassion for those not taking precautions, maybe individuals. Um, well, you can can bring your attention, let's say, to that person. Of course, if it's, you know, in some cases you might, it depends on the social context, in some cases you might act or respond uh, in some in some skillful way. So again, when we look at compassion, we want to look at what's my internal response, my more receptive response, and what's my more active response. And it's helpful to make the distinction there. An internal response, just see what's there for you, you know, and notice it. Are you notice, are you judgmental? Are you angry? Is there really compassion? So you could do that three-part compassion practice that we did. And you could also reflect at times that uh, not safe for this person, not safe for others. Um, again, in some situations, you might uh, want to actually intervene or respond. That That's going to depend. Um, yeah, thank you. A lot more probably could be said, but that's a quick, quick response. Sylvia has her hand raised. Sylvia, I can unmute you. Oh, you're unmuted. Okay. Then what I'd really like to say is, first of all, thank you so much, Donald, for your really lovely teaching. And uh, I am looking forward to being there next week. And uh, I, I liked everything you said. And particularly uh, that it all comes around uh, many of the, the suggestions leading to compassion so logically in this time um, makes sense because we are all operating uh, in the middle of a, a kind of an ambient uh, atmosphere of heightened tension. So when negative response arises, it's likely to be more jarring than it might at another time. We're already enough on edge so that the only possible response in a certain way is, first of all, to, to compassion. I like very much when you said, look at your discomfort that you want to think about and give it a number. And if it's up here in the high numbers, let's not do that. Let's, let's be a little kinder to ourselves. I, I was thinking to myself that um, maybe the most important thing to remember these days with ourselves is, uh, that we're all a little bit unnerved all the time. The kind of radical uncertainty that we live in actually all the time has not ever been so clear as this time when everybody in the whole world at the same time is living in a, in a, in a sense of radical uncertainty. And uh, I was thinking as a result of that, that the teaching would be give yourself some slack. Right. <laughs> and give other people some slack. They don't feel good either. So, <laughs> so that the people who don't keep their distance in the street, or <clears throat> who don't behave in the way that you, whatever it is, the minute that my, the moment that I can catch my mind, <clears throat> excuse me, beginning to have a judgment about somebody, I try to catch it because the judgment is painful. And I have enough pain already, and they're in pain, so we can all have some slack. So, and I'm very much looking forward to being back with you next week. It's such a pleasure to come to be part of this community and just be able to sit here quietly and hear my good buddy of so many years saying such wonderful things. Also, to have Eve, 
who I have known for so many, many, many years uh, here teaching with us. It's just a really great pleasure. So I hope that the, all of you who are celebrating the Passover tonight online, how many people are doing the Passover online? Um, that's, uh, we haven't done this before in our lives ever. So uh, we'll do it today. And um, um, that's it. May we all pass over this period of uncertainty and radical, radical uncertainty and awareness of the radical, radical uncertainty so we can all relax a little bit and uh, live with more ease. Yeah. Thank you, Sylvia. I, I like the addition of this very, very core spiritual teaching. Give yourself, give others some slack. <laughs> very, very crucial. When they write up about, you know, years from now, you know how they say, and the Buddha said, da 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 Sylvia said, give yourself some slack. <laughs> right, right. Actually, I could make a whole Dharma talk. Yeah, out maybe, maybe you will. <laughs> yeah. And I also remember um, a quotation uh, from Sylvia that has uh, that you've expressed at different times. It goes like this: "It's all compassion. It's all compassion." I could make a case for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it all is. Well, I will tell a one-minute story. No, it's twelve. Yeah, less than a minute. The first retreat I went to 40-some years ago was a weekend in somebody's house in San Mateo. It was altogether unpleasant, too hot. I didn't know what I was doing. It was too crowded. Everything was wrong with it. And I think what caused me to go home and sign up for more retreats was there was a little plaque on the on the uh, uh, fireplace, on the mantelpiece of the living room that I walked back and forth in front of. And the plaque was one of those girls from a national park where they usually say home sweet home or something. And this one said, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And I thought, you know, maybe if that's what they're teaching here, I should be here. So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sylvia. So we invite everyone just in our closing Come back, maybe come back inside for a moment. And I'll also mention again that um, Eve is doing uh, considerable teaching uh, online during the during these times. Uh, EveDecker.com if you want to get more information. So come back to that intention, what resonated from the day Maybe something from the discussion you want to add. And be for a moment now with the intention coming out of our morning together. And we'll close remembering that we meet, we do this practice both for ourselves and for others. And may we offer the benefits of the morning of our practice of our time together to ourselves, but also to others in ever widening circles that move outward. So thank you everyone and till next time.
Thank you so much. Thank you, Donald, for the lovely practice. Thank you, Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Eve. Very helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you Julia. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Juliana. Thank you, Juliana. Thank you, Eve. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Donald. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.